Jim Hinckley will tell you that a lot of the ghost towns he visits around the Old West used to be booming mining towns. There's always somebody who got rich, but usually it's the people who sold pickaxes and wheelbarrows, not the people who were out there digging in the dirt. Coming up, we'll hear which ones he recommends you visit from his 50 years of road trip adventures. Kathy Ryan knows that in Ireland, the traditional songs she sings are never taken lightly. A lot of people say it's because Irish music sings to the heart. I believe it sings to something larger, the spirit. And we'll hear what Carl Hoffman uncovered about the mysterious disappearance of Michael Rockefeller while looking to buy primitive art in the middle of New Guinea. Headhunting was an integral part of their culture, and part of that headhunting you know, was some cannibalism. And Michael unwittingly stepped into a very complex political world. Ghost towns, headhunters, and the wistful soul of Ireland are all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Did he drown or meet his end at the hands of cannibals? We explore a Rockefeller family mystery a little later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And singer Kathy Ryan shares songs that convey the spirit, history, and legends of Ireland. She joins us in just a bit. Let's start the hour planning a dusty road trip in search of what remains of the Wild West before it all disappears. Ghost towns can be kind of scary and abandoned and falling apart. Others have been turned into tourist attractions with lace curtain B&Bs, inviting restaurants, and an historic atmosphere for buying souvenirs on a weekend out of town. They're found all across the western United States these days, and they're towns that, however briefly, had their moment in the sun. Many are fading away. Jim Hinckley visited lots of these ghost towns and has co-authored Ghost Towns of the West to highlight their historic appeal and the atmosphere they provide for people with a curiosity for the forgotten byways of the Old West. Jim, thanks for being here. You bet. So these ghost towns are kind of like stages for imagining the legendary Wild West. What is the fun of going to a ghost town for you? When I was growing up, like a lot of kids, I fell in love with stories of uh, discoveries of uh, King Tut's tomb and things like this. And these old towns, you can unleash the imagination. And uh, I was fortunate as a kid. We moved out to Arizona in 1966, and uh, I had an opportunity to grow up and hear stories from some of the people who lived in these places, and it really inspired a passion. And especially for people our age, I mean, we grew up watching Wyatt Earp and The Rifleman and Laredo, and boy, you walk through a ghost town and you can almost imagine Doc Holliday stepping around the corner. Lots of history in these places, and it's amazing, some of these towns, how quickly they boomed, how quickly they faded. A lot of them never amounted more than just a, literally a tent city. But others, uh, like Rhyolite, was a modern, prosperous community. So Rhyolite was a town that wasn't even as old as a lot of towns that, that I would think of as ghost towns. It began, what, in 1905? Yeah, 1905, 1906. Mm-hmm. Now, that's in Nevada, kind of east of Death Valley. And why was uh, Rhyolite suddenly this boom town? What happened that, that helped it? What, what did it have, 5,000 people in it all of a sudden? Rhyolite's one of my favorites, and it's one of the most photographed sites in the southwest of the ghost towns. And because of ease access, it's, it's easy to get to just off State Highway 374. It went from literally being just a couple prospectors in tents, and within a few years they had uh, modern bank buildings with... Uh, marble floors, elevators, uh, three city swimming pools, hmm. a train depot that was serviced by three different railroads. And by 1910, 11, and 12, it was gone. Ah, 
So it was all based on a mine. Somebody struck it rich in a mine, and everybody went there, and they made a little money, but then it was overbuilt. And what it's, you said the population peaked at 5,000, and uh, within 12 months, it dropped below 1,000. And by 1920, almost nobody lived there. Yeah, it was pretty quick. A lot of the towns, and, and Rhyolite's a great example. There was some real gold discoveries there. But a lot of it was based on stock speculation. Hmm. So some people got rich in rhyolite from the gold. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. There's always somebody who got rich, but usually it's the people who sold pickaxes and wheelbarrows, <laughs> not the people who were out there digging. <laughs> Those the are the smart ones. Those who struck it rich sold the Levi's and the, and the guns and all that sort of thing. Now, by definition, these towns are dead. I mean, they're just they're ghost towns, but a lot of them are thriving as tourist attractions, aren't they? Oh, yes, yes. And so that's how it's kept some of them alive. But they've lost, uh, if they're not careful, like Oatman, Arizona. Oatman's a fun little town. It's on Route 66 in the Black Mountains. It was the site of the last major gold rush in Arizona. Hmm. And uh, it faded to to almost nothing. And now it's almost a caricature of Hmm. what people expect to see. But if you want something that's real, I mean, I would imagine a lot of these, like you mentioned, uh, Rhyolite was easy to get to. Are there some that are really just like somebody just shut down the the door and the last people moved out and they've just been rotting away for a hundred years and they're not commercialized because they're not next to a convenient road or a big city? Are there some that are just much more time warp kind of experiences that are hard to get to? Yeah, there are. Most of those have a caretaker and they've been preserved in an arrested state of decay. Bodie, California would be one example. Uh The Bureau of Land Management has preserved a lot of the buildings and uh, keep an eye on things there. Jim Hinckley's exploring the back roads of the Old West with us on Travel with Rick Steves. Jim promotes Route 66 tourism on his website, jimhinckleysamerica.com. He's co-authored the guidebook Ghost Towns of the West with Philip Varney. Were these towns mostly, uh, are they almost all from mining, or, or were a lot of them, did they have uh, other kind of economies? Because I can think mining would be more boom and bust. Was it also, some of them were on train lines, or some of them were cow herding centers, or... What was the economy back then? Well, yeah, you're right. A lot of it was mining, uh, but there was also ranching centers. There was also railroad camps. There was uh, construction camps uh, in Johnson Canyon near Ash Fork that required some major tunnel development, things of that nature. And a thriving little community survived there for over five years, uh, meeting the needs of the railroad community. Kind of a sad thing is they've just been literally picked clean of anything of, of any... Uh, historic value, aren't they? They're just basically lumber left? A lot of them have. Yeah. In the modern era, especially with uh, everybody has a four-wheeler or a Jeep, a lot of these really remote places now are so accessible. And as a result, souvenir hunters have, have picked them clean. And also the environment's pretty harsh on these places. And a lot of them, Rhyolite's an exception, but a lot of these towns were literally just thrown together. Hmm. And uh, there was no thought to longevity. It was the quick buck. And what if people have a romantic uh, sort of interest in Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and so on? Like me, what's Tombstone like? Tombstone is uh, a Disneyland set. Mm -hmm. It's really changed. Uh, My wife's father was actually uh, born in Tombstone. And his grandfather was the sheriff there in Cochise County. He talked about it during a family reunion. He was surprised that they had taken the sidewalks out and put in boardwalks. It sounds like if you want... Hollywood fantasy, you go to Tombstone. Is there a town that, in your mind that would give you the Tombstone experience that's not Tombstone, but actually more accurate? There's quite a few. Uh, Daggett, California is a pretty neat little town. Uh, 
It's uh, fallen on hard times. There's almost nobody left. But the little general store there has survived. It's been in business since 1909. Hmm. Uh, Crown King, Arizona is another one that's really worth a good visit, especially if you follow the old Senator Highway from Prescott, Arizona. Hmm. You can get a time capsule feel. You wrote about Vulture City in Arizona also. Yeah, Vulture City's a lot of fun just uh, outside of Wickenburg. Uh, they've preserved it quite well. It's uh, privately owned, and they've uh, preserved a lot of the buildings in a sort of a rusted state of decay. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jim Hinckley, and his book is Ghost Towns of the West. Boy, Jim, thumbing through this book, there's a lot of research and travel that went into this all over the West. What was it like researching these ghost towns, and how did you know where to go, and uh, what were some of the most enjoyable or exciting discoveries you made? Well, this book really was, uh, the research has been going on for about 50 years with this book. I started as a kid uh, here in Arizona, visiting some of these places with the old timers and kind of getting firsthand information of these places. And uh, the rest of it's been researched and uh, getting to know people like Bob Bozbell with True West Magazine and archivist, state archives, and small-town museums. Well, it's one thing to find something in an archive, but it's another thing to actually walk up the dusty street. And I'm just looking at the the photograph on the cover of your book and just be there, and there's just tumbleweeds and the wind and and no people anywhere. Recount for us a moment in your research where you just thought, wow, this is just really exceptional. The Senator Highway going up to uh, Crown King, there's a place back there, the Senator Highway. And, and what is, state is uh, this? Uh, Arizona. It would be a territorial highway from the 1870s, and uh, it's a dirt road. It's about 40 miles, takes about uh, four to five hours to travel. And you're following this old highway, and you come around this corner, and here's a two-story stage station. It was the Palace Station. And I found out that it had a real colorful transitional history. It was a hotel and, and stage station in the 1870s. But they were running stagecoaches down this road as late as 1915. Hmm. And as a result, they also had an automobile repair facility at this location at one time. And I found that transition really uh, quite fascinating. You know, in Europe, there's a a number of places that have recognized a a dying culture, and they've preserved it with uh, little um, video biographies of people telling their own story. And you get to see them and hear their voices. Is there any museum that you think is particularly good that gives us a sense of the the real humanity of the the Old West? Yeah, the Gold King Mine up in Jerome, Arizona. Mr. Robertson just passed away recently, but his family is carrying it on. He preserved a lot of this. He had operating sawmills uh, from the late 19th century, a lot of original equipment that he would fire up and show you how it worked. Hmm. And his family still does that then for visitors. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like if you want to go to one state to see ghost towns, it sounds like Arizona is the state. Well, my favorite is uh, New Mexico. The reason for New Mexico is because the ghost towns there are really old. You will find ghost towns like um, San Jose, New Mexico. uh, I think there's 10 people left. It dates to about uh, 1790. The little church there was built in 1826, and it's cast its shadow over the uh, Santa Fe Trail, the National Old Trails Road, and Route 66. Hmm. And also you write about Lake Valley in New Mexico. Lake Valley is an amazing place, uh, the Bridal Chamber. To this date, that is the richest silver deposit ever discovered. Wow. The silver was so pure, they were they were literally melting it off the walls with their lanterns, their uh, mining lanterns. Oh, they must have been going crazy. Now, that was back in the 1880s, right? Uh, yeah, the late 1880s, the whole Black Range, there was uh, Lake Valley, Hillsborough, and Kingston were all real boom towns. But that Bridal Chamber in Lake Valley was the uh, richest silver deposit ever discovered. 
and the word of that must have traveled like wildfire back in those days. It did, and it brought in all the speculators and uh, honest people as well. But it, it sparked things. Uh, one fellow down near Shakespeare, New Mexico, he got the idea that they were doing so well north, he salted the area with diamonds and sold uh, claims, made himself a small fortune. Wow, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jim Hinckley, the author of Ghost Towns of the West. We're learning a little bit of wisdom of the Old West. Let's just close with a with a thought. If you were hosting a European tourist traveling around the United States who had some appetite for understanding the Wild West, uh, where would you take him for just a, a real vivid and fun taste of our nation's Wild West history? Probably Bisbee, Arizona. Mm-hmm. It kind of stretches the point of ghost town, but it's um, become more of an artist colony. But there's so much that remains there, and the people are passionate. They've preserved things. It's a really dynamic and fun little place in a very scenic location. Bisbee, Arizona. All right. Hey, Jim Hinckley, thanks so much, and, and congratulations on your book, Ghost Towns of the West. Thank you. Jim shares an Old West ghost legend in a website extra to this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Carl Hoffman went all the way to New Guinea to investigate an unsolved Rockefeller family mystery from 1961. He tells us what he found in just a bit. But first, singer Kathy Ryan remembers Ireland's heroes and legends in its spirited ballads and songs. It's Travel with Rick Steves. In Ireland, they say you'll never forget someone if you write a song about them. The Irish remember the events and the people who've shaped their history in the many traditional songs they've written over the years. For a lyrical look at some of the heroes of Ireland, some real and some legendary, we're joined now by singer Kathy Ryan. Kathy's a proud Irish-American, and she lives in the northeast corner of the Republic of Ireland. She's with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to introduce us to some of the people that Ireland remembers in its songs. Kathy, so good to have you here. It is great to be here. Whenever I think of you, I, I just think of just a joy of life in the context of Ireland and how music ties in with that. And I also remember you grew up in Detroit. Yes. In, uh, Motown music. I mean, how did a Detroit girl get so just swept away by traditional Irish folk music to the degree that you moved there and now you're a well-known Irish folk singer? Well, my father was a singer. He came from Tipperary and he was a brilliant tenor, fabulous. And my mother was a musician at heart, so she always had music on the stereo playing, plopping down. Remember vinyl? One after the other, plopping down. And also we were members of the Gaelic League and the Irish American Club in downtown Detroit. And that was our community. That was where we socialized. So I sang my first song into a mic there when I was seven for my father for Father's Day. And I would get up after that at sessions, singing sessions where everybody sits around and they play instruments and they sing songs. And people don't know that about Detroit. It's a, it's got a very, very strong Irish population. You really had a bit of Ireland in Detroit. Absolutely. And then all the time I spent in Ireland as a child, in my grandmother's kitchen and my grandfather's kitchens. No television. The news came on the radio. Otherwise, it was off. Everything was generated by us. And it was all song and story. It was a magical time. I'm so grateful that I got to have that experience as a kid. Other countries have music, but no other country has music quite like Ireland. I agree. A lot of people say it's because Irish music sings to the heart. I believe it sings to something larger, the spirit. It buoyed the spirits of the Irish who have left through the centuries of no choice of their own to make livings in other countries, to go fight in foreign wars. It also kept alive, as you said in your introduction, all of the heroic people 
and Pride of Place. Every single little nook and cranny in Ireland has a song written about it. It is a way to name things and to keep them sacred, if you will. So when you drive around Ireland as a tour guide, you must be bursting with an interest in, oh, here's a, a new town that has a song about yes, that and everywhere you go. I try not to. <laughs> I don't want people to run off the bus or throw me off the bus. But yes, you can sing a song about everything. And for me, it punctuates an historical talk, something I'm talking about, I can say, and now I'd like to sing this song for you. But there are songs about you know, winning race dogs. There are songs about great horses. There are songs about people's families. There are songs about deaths in communities, drownings off the coasts of Connemara that are heartbreaking. So everything is kept in the music. It's a life raft. And heartbreaking is a lot of Ireland's history because of your relationship with England and uh, just tough times. And then Civil War, once Ireland wins its... I mean, just in a nutshell... You were subjugated by the the English for centuries. Yes. You finally win your independence, what, 100 years ago or so, and then there's a civil war about how Ireland's going to be managed by its own people. Exactly. Whose side are you on? Do you want a completely free Ireland, or will you take this interim step of 26 counties until you can get more? So the 1916 Rising was a big deal. It was like the American Revolution in Irish history. Just a little over 100 years ago, there must be songs that bring you back to that, that stir your Irish patriotism or pride. And even better than that, Rick, because some of the men and women who were actually on the front lines during the Easter Rising wrote these songs. I'd like to sing one for you now, if that's okay. Sure. This is a song that was written by Patrick Pierce. Patrick Henry Pierce was one of the signatures of the Proclamation of Independence. And it's a very powerful song. He took an old melody and he wrote new words to it. And he is saying to the people, Grace O'Malley, who was the pirate queen of Ireland, born in 1530, she was the chieftain of her clan, and she fought hard against the dominion by Elizabeth I. He's saying she is coming over the waves, and she is going to liberate you from the foreigners, not people from France or Spain. We are now going to have our own heroes. So... Shade of a haven baling were the bay or grok who vain naven to who you brought is shell merlock is to jilt a lash na gala. Oh, Roche the Vahawalia, oh, Roche the Vahawalia, oh, Roche the Vahawalia, Anishtar Hakdan Taura. That's just one verse. So the Irish are going to save themselves. Yes. And they're going to do it speaking Gaelic. Yes. It's going to be the Gaels, not the French or the Spanish. Oh. And it's going to be Grace O'Malley. And I love the chorus because what he's, O Roche de Vahawalia, you are welcome home. You are welcome home now that the summer is coming. The rising for them in spring was the planting of that seed. He says in the last verse of this song, we may not live a week after this. Right. And they barely did. We may not live a week after this, but in summer will be the bloom of what we've done. So now, at this point, there's already been the diaspora, Ireland spreading out. I mean, there's 10 Irish people in America for every Irish person in Ireland, I understand. Was this actually a a global call for the Irish people to recognize that this this is the new morning? Yes, because money was being raised in America by Eamon de Valera to bring back, to support their efforts in Ireland, and also a lot of the musicians. Michael Coleman, brilliant fiddle player, Mm -hmm. changed the way Irish people play the fiddle. His label was called Republic Records, and they were raising money from the music to send back to Ireland. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kathy Ryan, and she's been in the vanguard of Irish music now for more than 25 years. She's a performer in ensembles like Cherish the Ladies, and she's also a solo performer. Kathy was named the Irish Female Vocalist of the Decade two times by LiveIreland.com. Kathy was born in Detroit. Now she calls Ireland's County Louth her home. Information about Kathy's albums and her performance schedule are on her website, and that's KathyRyan.com. Now, when we think about Ireland, it's also a proud culture. Of course, it's got its struggle with London to be independent. And I understand that the first printed book of Irish ballads also served as kind of a cultural document for Ireland, too. It's a ballad history of Ireland. I'm not sure if it was the very first book, but it was the most lauded book and the most accepted. It was Thomas Davis, who was one of the Young Irelanders, a movement um, that was very, very strong. The precursor, actually, that they would have inspired Pierce and Connolly and Plunkett. When Ireland was starving during the Great Hunger, Thomas Davis was writing songs about nationhood. He was a pacifist. He didn't believe in aggression. He was a Protestant as well. Some people listening might think, oh, it's between Catholic and Protestants. Mm-hmm. No, no the, the fight for Ireland's sovereignty was Protestant and Catholic fighting together because they wanted Ireland to be its own nation. But he wrote songs and he believed that the best way to serve the history of a country was through its balladry. And I think that's true because all of the songs of Ireland's struggles are extant. They still exist. We're still singing them. They keep it in the present. And also... They make it very egalitarian. Everybody becomes a part of this struggle or this this hope because they're singing it. And you get caught up in that even the tourist whose first day in Ireland, if they can find themselves into a, a pub where you have a session going on that's that's really filled with locals, you get caught up in it. You're welcome to be caught up in this, the way the music invigorates the national spirit. Absolutely. And I think... One of the reasons why is because we all know in Ireland as singers and musicians that it's not about us. It's not the culture of celebrity that sadly we're going into now. It's about the song or the tune, and we are serving it now. If it was a great song or tune, it was there before us, and it will be there after us. So we're just playing our part in continuing the culture. You know, when I was in Dublin recently, of course you're going to hear uh, street musicians and you hear music in the pubs. You actually hear street poets people that are standing on the street corner, and they'll, they'll do poetry for you at, on request, like yes. a musician would. And the thought that you've got poets who would put their poetry to music is something a lot of us don't realize. There's an extra dimension. Who's a great Irish poet that might have been caught up in the music? Yeats. 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 And I, when I'm on the coach as a tour guide, I play Yeats reciting his poetry because he sings it. I will arise and go now. Go to Inish Free. And he's singing it. You know, you can hear the song in his voice. But he, after the young Irelanders, he believed the same things as they believed in. He believed that Ireland's identity came from its culture and they needed to come home to that culture. And he would write plays and poetry about the mythological figures, the great heroes of Irish myth. If I could sing a little bit of a poem of his that was put to music by a German composer, it's the Song of the Wandering Angus. Angus Og was the son of the great god, the Dagda, and the great goddess Bowen, who formed the Boyne River. And he lived in Newgrange. He lived in Brune the Boyne. And he fell in love with this woman because she came to him every night and sang. And then she stopped coming, and he wanted to find her. And he spent a very long time looking, 
and when he found her, she had become a swan. And she said, I'll come to you if you can pick me out of these hundreds of other swans. And he calls her name. He recognizes her. So then he becomes a swan and flies off with her. The Song of the Wandering Angus. I went out to the hazel wood Because a fire was in my head I cut and peeled a hazel wand And hooked a berry to a thread And when white moths were on the wing and moth-like stars were flickering out. I dropped the berry in the stream and caught a little silver trout. Sitting here at this table across from you and watching you sing that, I've been in a pub in Ireland with you when there's quiet and then somebody sings in a solo a cappella way like this. Would that be normally sung a cappella? Yes. So you could have all sorts of chaos and dancing and music and fiddle, and then silence. Yes. All attention goes to usually a female singer. Often. What's it like to be in a pub, all sorts of beer, all sorts of flirting going on, all sorts of craziness, and then all attention on you, and you're sharing something from Ireland's, more than the past, from the soul? It just happened to me recently the other week. I was in Tipperary, and uh, the musicians were playing, and people were banging their feet, and lots of chatter, and I started to sing, and silence just descended on the room. It's such a privilege for that to happen. I mean, you feel that you're not being honored so much as they're honoring you singing the song. You're a conduit. Yes. Oh. They're honoring you singing the song, and they need to listen to the words of the song. Right. And my father always said, what makes you a great singer is not singing in the middle of the pitch. It's not having an amazing range it's being able to take someone out of the room. And you do that. And for a traveler to have that experience, there is nothing like it. I try not to use the word magical thing because that's easy to throw in. But when I'm in a pub in Ireland and the spirit is right, and especially when suddenly it's quiet and somebody sings a song that lets you touch the soul of Ireland, there's nothing like it. No, I agree. It's transcendent. It, it transcends it the here and now, the mundane, the... It goes to another level, and that's something that Yeats believed in. He thought that's what made the Irish special, different. Kathy Ryan's bringing us genuine Irish soul music right now on Travel with Rick Steves as we explore how Ireland's history and legendary characters have been immortalized in song. Kathy posts lyrics to the songs and ballads she's recorded at kathyryan.com. Kathy, we've talked about heroes with the rising of 1916. We've talked about how poetry is carried by music. Also, there's a lot of villains in Irish history. How does traditional Irish music remember the villains? Well, we don't like to think that we're villainous. We like to think we're all heroes. <laughs> so most of the Irish songs about villains are sung from the point of view of the person who's trying to overcome whatever obstacle the villain is putting in its path. And then you have... Just some really dark songs like Willia Willia Walia, which is a song you learn as a child in Ireland, and it's absolutely horrific, but it's done in such a rhymy, sing-songy way that it's actually enjoyable to sing. You want to hear a bit of that? Willia Willia Walia. Yes. Uh, yes, I would. There was an old woman who lived in the woods. Willia Willia Walia. 
There was an old woman who lived in the woods down by the river Sawia. She had a baby three months old. Wheelia, wheelia, wheelia. Anyway, it goes on and on, and, and the baby doesn't fare well, nor does she. <laughs> so, so there's a, there's a little bit of fun in yes, in, in the, in the yes, stories of the in illness. the absolute sacrilege of motherhood in this song, you know. And that's one thing I love about the Irish; they're very irreverent. You know, there's so much we could talk about, but I just want to finish off by. Uh, talking about something that, as a musician, you must, frankly, get kind of tired of people asking you to play Danny Boy. Uh, but it's such a hit with travelers, and it's always a tearjerker when you hear it, especially with Americans trying to connect with their Irish heritage. Help us a little bit with the lyrics of Danny Boy and, and what it means to an Irish musician outside of tourism. There are a lot of Irish musicians who wouldn't do Danny Boy because it's been so commercialized, but I think it's a very important song. Someone once said to me, it's Shakespeare, and I think that's true. After the great hunger, when people would leave the country, they would wake them because they would never see them again. And songs like Danny Boy... They would wake them, meaning they would, they would treat them. it like they've died. Yes. And the person would be there, and it would, yes. it would be a send-off. As it if would a be death, a send-off. Because they're leaving Ireland forever. The world was a much bigger place then, and they would yeah. go by sea. Huh. Uh, it wasn't always safe. And they would send money home usually, but they very rarely in the early days in the 1800s got home. That's all changed now, of course. Right. But Danny Boy, to me, I love as a mother because it is letting your child go. Hmm. It is detaching from them with love and saying, look, I know you mightn't come back and I may be gone when you come back, but I know you love me. And that is a huge gift to give a child when they have to go. So now when I hear Danny Boy, I'll have a little better context. Sing a, phrase, sing a stanza mm -hmm. of Danny Boy, please. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. From glen to glen and down the mountainside, the summer's gone. And all the leaves are falling. Tis you, tis you must go, and I must bide. But come ye back when summer's in the meadow. Or when the valley's hushed and white with snow, tis I'll be here in sunshine or in shadow, O oh, Danny boy. Oh, Danny boy, I love you so. Wow, thank you. I've heard that song so many times, but I didn't know the context. Kathy, thank you so much. Best wishes in sharing both your love of music and your love of Ireland. Thank you for allowing me to do that today, too.
For more than 50 years, there's been a mystery about how Nelson Rockefeller's 21-year-old son disappeared. Carl Hoffman painstakingly explored the roadless swamplands of New Guinea to find out. We'll hear what he thinks happened next on Travel with Rick Steves. It's got all the makings of a tabloid headline or an action movie. The son of one of America's richest families travels to an exotic locale, disappears under mysterious circumstances, and is rumored to have been eaten by cannibals. Was it true, or did he drown, as the official reports claimed? Journalist Carl Hoffman was determined to find out what actually happened to Michael C. Rockefeller. The 21-year-old son of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller was never seen again after he went missing in New Guinea back in 1961. Hoffman retraced Rockefeller's journey, combed through archives, and interviewed eyewitnesses to come to his own conclusions, which he writes about in Savage Harvest, a tale of cannibals, colonialism, and Michael Rockefeller's tragic quest. Carl, good to have you back on the show. Thanks so much. So did I set that Rockefeller story up correctly there? Yes, no question. I mean, uh, Michael graduated. He was the son of Nelson, who was the governor of New York at the time, and he graduated from Harvard and went off to New Guinea to work on a film, and his father had opened the Museum of Primitive Art, as it was called then, a few years earlier, and Michael was a trustee. And while he was in New Guinea, he heard about a people called the Azmat, who lived on the southwest coast and were incredible carvers. And he determined to go to Azmat and try to collect some Azmat art, which he did. He made a quick uh, sort of a reconnaissance journey of a few weeks and then uh, went back to the film. And then when that was done, he decided to go back for a couple months. And uh, on that trip, he vanished. So Michael Rockefeller was 21 years old. This was back in 1961. In your studying of this, did it seem to you like he was just uh, a buccaneer looking for this indigenous art to bring home to his primitive art museum? Or did he really become enamored with the culture and just wanted to learn more about it and, and connect with it? Well, I think it's a a little bit of both. I mean, I don't think Michael was much of a buccaneer. He was a young, earnest man, very smart, well-educated. He'd grown up around art, you know, the way um, most American kids have grown up around baseball Hmm. and, um, you know, some of the greatest art of of the world. He was enamored of and, and fascinated by Azmat culture and Azmat carving. I mean, you know, the best of the carving, the most spectacular of these things were, you know, 23, 24 foot high uh, poles, kind of like totem poles, if you will. I think he had a, an earnest interest in it. I mean, you know, at the same time, he was young, he was inexperienced, he was wealthy. He, you know, got access and breaks that a regular person Mm -hmm. wouldn't have had. And certainly those things contributed to the disaster that he fell into. And this is in New Guinea. This is a a huge island down between Thailand and Indonesia. It's one of the most remote places uh, on on Earth, really. How do you go there and find an artistic treasure and then buy it to bring it home? What's the mechanics of that? Well, at the time, it was known as Netherlands New Guinea. It was Dutch New Guinea, the last Dutch colony of the East Indies. And that, of course, made it a little bit easier for him. But the region that he went to was Asmat. It's 10,000. Even today, it's 10,000 square miles of roadless swamp. In the inner villages, there are no stores, no plumbing, no electricity, 
Uh, he bought a boat from a Dutch colonial patrol officer, uh, sort of a two dugout canoes with a little bit of a sort of Huck Finn-like uh, cabin on top and with a Dutch miner, a 34-year-old anthropologist named uh, Rene Wassing and two local boys. They just went off from village to village, you know, and they would arrive in the village and say they were interested in stuff and people would bring it out. But you have to understand, in 1961, Asmat was an incredibly remote place. Really, Western contact had just been made in the late 1950s, and the Asmat were a, a people of great artistic passion and power, but they were also uh, constant warfare with each other and uh, lived in a world of this sacred reciprocal violence of which the art was all a part and, mm. uh, you know, and, and headhunting was an integral part of their culture and part of that headhunting, you know, was also some cannibalism. And Michael unwittingly stepped into a very complex political world and he ended up at the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, you could be very wealthy and sophisticated, but from a cultural point of view, you could also be very naive and green venturing into a society like well, this. Well, one of the great ironies of the story is that, you know, this is a, a man from who represents you know the most powerful family in the most powerful country in the world and in asmat at the crucial moment he was uh the least powerful man in all the world and you know cannibalism is all about intimacy and power and it's all about taking somebody's power and headhunting and you know when the asmat men who killed him did so, they were taking back their power. It was sort of a desperate bid to take power back that had been usurped by Dutch colonialists and Dutch efforts to pacify them and take away their culture. And, and they consumed him. And there's no more articulate display of, of power than that. So did they eat Rockefeller thinking they were just eating a white guy that represented colonialism, or did they know they were eating a man from the most powerful family in the most powerful white country? No, they didn't know anything about the Rockefellers. The Rockefeller name meant nothing to them. I mean, it's a complex story that in a nutshell in 1957, as I said, the Dutch were trying to pacify the Asmat, mm -hmm. and in 1957... There was a war between two villages, and many uh, men were killed, mm -hmm. uh, local men. You know, they killed each other, and a very aggressive, uh, racist Dutch colonial patrol officer went to the village specifically to teach the village a lesson, as he wrote in his uh, reports. And he was afraid, and he brought a lot of armed policemen with him, and he arrived into this village of Ochnep, which was a legendary, you know, a traditional place, a place that had resisted the incursions of the Dutch and didn't want to change its ways. Why should it? Why would it want to? He ended up opening fire and killing five people, and that left the village with a sacred obligation to, you know, everything was awry, I mean, spiritually, and it left the village with a sacred obligation to reciprocate the men's death, and Michael kind of swam into that, as it turned out. So he gave them the opportunity to reciprocate, basically by stumbling into their world. He did. Carl Hoffman's been on assignment to more than 70 countries as a reporter. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, he's telling us what he discovered about the plight of Michael C. Rockefeller as he investigated his disappearance and a deadly clash between cultures in the jungles of New Guinea. His book is called Savage Harvest. Now, I, I don't 
well, I guess I am focusing on cannibalism because it's fascinating and apparently it's, it's a reality. Um, but I guess when these tribal people decide to eat a human being, it's not a matter of nutrition. It's not like the Donner Party. It's a matter of um, power and symbolism. Is that right? Yeah, it's not like, you know, we're hungry, let's go get a Big Mac or anything. No, because it's, it's easier uh, to get an it, animal in that regard, but you're just asserting yourself by symbolically well, I mean, it's ritualistic very, eating somebody. Yeah, it gets very complex, but, mm-hmm. you know, cannibalism is uh, within a, is a sacred act within mm-hmm. a complex web of obligation and ceremony and customary laws and that has great meaning and importance. Is there a ritualistic way to actually cook the person? Yes, very much so, which I won't go into uh, here, but uh, I do in the book. The Rockefeller family uh, maintains that their son was was not a victim of cannibals. Well, he was actually on a boat crossing the mouth of a river that had engine trouble and then flipped over and drifted and Michael uh, said, you know, I think he violated the first law of yachting, which is to, you know, never leave the boat as long as it's still afloat. And Mm -hmm. he said, I think I can make it. And Renee Wassing, who was older and wiser, said, you know, if you go, you're on your own. I'm not leaving. And Michael did. And he swam away from the boat and he was never seen again. And there was a massive search. And, of course, Renee was uh, rescued the following day by Dutch patrol planes. Mm There was a massive search for Michael. You know, Nelson and uh, Michael's sister, Mary, both went to New Guinea immediately and a fairly sophisticated search for him, and no trace of him was ever found. So it was natural to assume that he had disappeared. And, of course, Rene had seen him swim off, mm-hmm. that he disappeared at sea. But as it turned out, very soon afterwards, there were Dutch missionaries who had been living in the among villagers for years and spoke the local language and began making their rounds and hearing reports that Michael had in fact made it to shore and encountered men from this very specific village and that he had been killed. And they actually investigated it fairly thoroughly and wrote detailed reports. I mean, so detailed they named names, who had his thigh, who had ribs, you know, who had his glasses. Those reports they filed both to their superiors in the Catholic Church and to the Dutch government, mm-hmm. and uh, those were. And the Dutch government ultimately actually dispatched another patrol officer to the village to do a, an official investigation, which he did. And all of those reports were squashed and mm-hmm. and uh, never went anywhere. For many years, it wasn't unreasonable for the Rockefeller family to assume that he had, in fact, died at sea, as they were told. Later, there were rumors began to surface publicly and ultimately, like in my book, I mean, there are, you know, I I found huge amounts of documents and archival, all this original contemporaneous stuff that many people had never seen before. But, you know, they're leading you to conclude that he had been a victim of cannibals. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Carl Hoffman. He's a travel writer and his writing takes him to some of the most exotic places. He's written about the mystery surrounding the disappearance of Michael C. Rockefeller in 1961 in a jungle region of New Guinea. And his book is called Savage Harvest. Carl's also written The Last Wild Men of Borneo. His website is carlhoffman.com. 
So, Carl, the Rockefeller story is so fascinating. And related to that is just the opportunity to actually travel there. And I've never encountered a country that says, travel here, and if you step out of the off the track, you can be eaten by the locals. Is there actually tourism in this part of New Guinea? And today, is it safe to travel there? And are there still tribes that maintain these traditions that was the doom of Rockefeller? It's certainly possible to travel almost anywhere in the island of New Guinea. Asmat is still very remote. It is difficult to get to. Uh, the Asmat are all Catholics today. There's been no cannibalism since the early 1960s, so it's certainly safe in that way. You know, you can go, but it is definitely expensive and difficult. You know, one of my most rich travel experiences was traveling uh, to New Guinea flying into the middle of that island. It was Papua New Guinea. You were talking about the other half of the island, but I imagine it's essentially the same culture. And I was just fascinated by the people I met and the the tight communities and the humor and the music and the traditions that were still vivid. And and a traveler could actually experience those. You could sit on a log with somebody chewing a betel nut and uh, a little kid ran by and and, uh, the man knew what kid it was by the footprint he left in the sand. Mm. Uh, uh, You Mm. know, as a community that was so tight, I understood there's no local word for orphan. Everybody takes care of everybody. Mm -hmm. And in Asmat, there are fantastic drummers and singers and dancers. And, you know, sometimes they will drum and sing for 24 hours straight all through the night. And it's a really uh, fantastic, beautiful, it kind of takes you into a different Mm. world. And, you know, it's one of those things that I'll never forget. There is a lot of um, missionary influence. And I felt there was actually competing missionary groups from different Christian denominations. Nations, And, uh, you know, this would be Baptist, this would be Lutheran, this would be Catholic, and so on. It has a huge impact on the community. What was your experience in that regard? Absolutely. Well, traditionally, at least in uh, West Papua, the Protestants took the highlands and the Catholics took the coasts. Hmm. You know, for a long time in Asmat, first there were Dutch missionaries, and then those were replaced by Americans after Indonesia took over uh, from the Dutch, even in Papua in 1962. And today, there are fewer uh, American missionaries. Most of those missionaries are, or I should say, just most of the Catholic officials are the bishop is a local mm-hmm. uh, a local man. But, you know, the, most of those people are, are often very, very strong Catholics, but they're Catholics with um, multiple wives and, you know, one foot in one world and one foot in another. Yeah. And I, I think the, the modern missionary work is a little more sensitive than the old Brazen Bibles days. And... Uh, I know when I was there, uh, the Lutheran Church from the First World was actually bringing in missionaries from Madagascar in a tropics-to-tropics kind of work because they understood the tempo of society and the respect for the local big man, and it was a much more thoughtful kind of uh, international compassion, I think. I mean, the Catholic Church in Asmat, where Michael Rockefeller disappeared, played a fairly strong role in actually encouraging the uh, resumption of ceremonies and carving that had been banned by the Indonesians. So more sensitive to the indigenous culture, I suppose. Indeed. This is so interesting to grapple with this as a first world traveler. And for a lot of people, there's this, this sort of ethical struggle. Do we want to bring the comforts and the education and the health care and the modern medicine to these primitive communities? and call it civilization? Or is it more correct and and more ethical just to stay away and and let them continue in their traditional ways? Let's finish our conversation on New Guinea just with your take on on that ethical 
issue? Well, I think it's a powerful issue. I don't think it's as simple as black and white as, as you make it out to be. I don't think, you know, first thing is not to call them primitive. I mean, they're technologically uh, not as developed, but they're very complex societies that are every bit as uh, complex as Western cultures. And, you know, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, it's not about what we want. It's not about imposing our own sense of development on people, but traveling uh, sensitively and, and listening to people and listening to what they want and what they need and what their struggles are, rather than, you know, using words like civilization or primitive and imposing our own values and beliefs on them. How much time did you spend in New Guinea in, in your work with Savage Harvest? I made two two-month trips. And of that four months you spent in New Guinea as an American travel writer, what was the thing that kind of shook up your ethnocentrism and, and gained you a respect for that culture? Is there any particular uh, example you could share? Well, I think when I lived in the village, in the village of Birian Ochenep for a month, and I lived with a family and a man who was a, the head of that family, Kokai, and, you know, I think everything about that experience was pretty profound. You know, I, I think for me, someone who has had this long fascination with indigenous people, and, you know, we tend to think of them in very you know, we project our own fantasies upon them and, and mm -hmm. imagine them as exotic or as objects, really. I think we mm -hmm. tend to fetishize them. And my experience living with them was just that they're complex, three-dimensional people who uh, who can't be easily uh, put in a jar and that mm -hmm. we need to look at them in a much broader way. And it's much a big more. challenge for first-world travelers. And you become particularly aware of that when you go to a an amazing and, and rich and yet remote culture like one you'd find on New Guinea. And yet that's why it's, um, you know, you can argue that it's so important to, to make that journey. Yeah. This is Travel Through Steve's. We've been talking with Carl Hoffman. His book is Savage Harvest. Carl, thanks so much. I'm glad that you had this this fascination in the Rockefeller story and in writing this book, you're able to give us a better understanding and a better appreciation of the indigenous cultures in New Guinea. Such a pleasure. Thanks for letting me share. You bet. Whether you travel far from home or just across the street, we'd still like to hear about your travels in the form of a haiku poem. Here are some original haiku our listeners have sent us from the link on the radio page at ricksteves.com. Jim Snyder from Chuliota, Florida, came up with this haiku at the Paul Brown Stadium on the riverfront in Cincinnati while watching a Bengals football game. Ohio River, bratwurst mustard on my nose, scenic Roebling Bridge. Roy Barnes of Cheyenne, Wyoming, writes about the approach of fall in the Entlebuch region of Switzerland. Mist over the moors, daylight goes gray, yearning for fall to turn hopeful. And Jory Slodke from Raleigh, North Carolina, remembers the fun she had watching one of the performances at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Puppets reenact pulp fiction with tiny guns. Strings tangle, limbs fly. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner. Thanks to KNPR Las Vegas and National Public Radio in Washington for studio help and to Gretchen Strauch for reading our listener travel haiku. Jim Hinckley tells us about a recurring Old West ghost sighting from the back roads of Arizona in an extra to this week's show. You'll find it at ricksteves.com slash radio. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. 
At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.